and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with an assessment of the war in Ukraine lasting months, if not years, and how that will impact domestic politics with the November elections coming up, and the likelihood that, as Ukraine is pounded into rubble and thousands of civilians are massacred, Republicans will start blaming Biden for not doing enough. Joining us is Lincoln Mitchell, a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Salzman Institute of War and Peace Studies, the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is The Giants and Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992. We will discuss his article at NBC News, Biden probably didn't expect Putin's invasion of Ukraine to last this long. That's a problem. Then we'll examine the Biden administration's announcements today that is extending the moratorium on federal student debt, which stands at $1.7 trillion and counting. Joining us to discuss how much the problem is being kicked down the road with the latest pause ending on August the 31st, just before the midterm elections, is Barmak Nasirian the Vice President for Higher Education Policy at Veterans Education Success, where he develops and executes the organization's higher education policy priorities. He has worked on the last three congressional reauthorizations of the Higher Education Act, including multiple rounds of negotiated rulemaking with the United States Department of Education, and has testified before congressional committees on various higher education topics. Then finally, we'll speak with Carol Sanger, a professor of law at Columbia Law School, where she teaches courses on reproductive rights, family law, the legal profession, and law and gender. Her latest book is about abortion, terminating pregnancy in the 21st century. We will discuss the punitive new abortion ban in Oklahoma, which is being overrun by medical refugees from Texas seeking abortions, and the likelihood that in June, Roe v. Wade will be overturned or neutered by our reactionary Supreme Court. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Lincoln Mitchell, who's a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Salzman Institute of War and Peace Studies the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy, the latest of which is The Giants and Their City, Major League Baseball in San Francisco, 1976 to 1992. And he has an article at NBC News, Biden probably didn't expect Putin's invasion of Ukraine to last this long. That's a problem. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lincoln Mitchell. Thank you for having me back. It's always good to be here. Well, thanks for joining us. And of course, Biden released a lot of intelligence, which is unusual in the build-up to this war, basically getting it right, saying it's going to happen. And all the while, of course, Putin was denying his intentions to invade Ukraine. So 
to that extent, he got the wall right. In other words, what Putin was really up to. So why do you think he got it wrong in anticipating that it would be a short war as opposed to a long war, which it appears to, to be developing into? Well, he did get the war right, and the U.S. intelligence services did get the war right, and that should be recognized. I also want to point out that Biden's not the only person who maybe, and not Biden personally, the U.S. government in general, um, you know, Vladimir Putin thought they'd be in Kiev and they'd take Kiev within a week, probably less. Well, he was very, very wrong about that. But in general, the U.S. Ex did not expect the Ukrainian military, even though NATO forces have been supporting and working with the military, to be quite this strong against Russia. Or to put it another way, nobody really expected the Russian military to fall apart like this. And I know this is an odd thing to say at this moment when we're just learning every few hours, it seems, about the, the extraordinary human rights violations and, and war crimes committed by Russia. But, you know, the, the Russian military has a string of tanks that are kind of rusting in the Ukrainian mud. They've had over 10,000 casualties already come, come back to Russia. So I suspect the American government overestimated the strength of the Russian military. And from what I hear from people who pay more attention to the kind of guns and bombs side of the analysis than I do, had been preparing to equip Ukraine to fight, push back, to resist Russia in a kind of longer term guerrilla resistance rather than a kind of military to military war because they didn't think it would last this long. Well, that has echoes of the Cold War, though. You know, there was the bomber gap, the missile gap throughout the entire Cold War. The U.S. built up Russia into this 10-foot-tall giant, uh, when in fact, you know, in many ways, they've always been a Potemkin village. There's a lot of truth to that. However, don't forget that, you know, um, Moscow, I mean, this isn't a war really because it was within the borders of the Russian Federation, but the Russian military basically flattened uh, Chechnya and, and Grozny, the, the capital of, of Chechnya. In 2008, in the Russian-Georgia War, which is the most, the I think, most relevant comparison for the moment— the, the war lasted five or six days, and it ended because Vladimir Putin decided it was over. They, the Georgian military was not able to, to fight back, unfortunately. So there was reason to think this military was stronger than it was. They had been trying to modernize, but there also was reason to think the Ukrainian military was stronger than it was. I mean, as this was a miscalculation by Biden, perhaps, but it was a much, much bigger miscalculation by Vladimir Putin, who, had he known this, there's no way he would have started this war. I don't believe but I don't think he's going to end it, is he? I mean, these peace talks are, are a sham. Uh, no. At, at this point, I mean, he's if you're in for, for a dime, you're in for a dollar here. I hate to be so crass about it, but right now he, he's got no path to go but forward. And what that means is more attacks, more bombing, more war crimes in Ukraine against the Ukrainian people because he can't walk away from this and say we've done what we needed to do. No, nobody's going to believe that. He's, he's not going to be able to take Kiev and take the country and control it. And there's the sanctions are so strong. And, and he's kind of the Russian military and his, and his leadership have crossed that Rubicon. They are now war criminals. And no one's going to want to sit down with Putin and, and cut a deal that he can live with. So he is going to keep going forward, I believe, for a while. And that is terribly unfortunate. And that means, really, that the war on the east will be where the focus is. And we don't know the extent of Ukrainian casualties, but they have to be fairly high, not as high as the Russians. But still, they can't afford to lose as many men as the Russians can. 
you know, the, the difference in the population is between 44 million Ukrainians and 150 million Russians. So uh, Russia's this, got a much bigger army, but they're already bringing in people from other countries, you know, from from other countries where they've where they've supported the effort. So it is it depends what the ratio of casualties are. Right. This is what I mean. This is what war is. It's terrible. But the Russians are going to try to kill as many Ukrainian military. The, the Ukrainian military is going to push Russia out of the country. And if that means killing Russian soldiers, that what's what they'll do. The real the other tragedy here is that the civilian casualties will begin to mount up even greater numbers. The people who are fleeing the country or IDPs within Ukraine going from east to west, they're already talking in the millions. That number will go up. And and the, the damage to the country's infrastructure, cities being destroyed, infrastructure being destroyed as well. And indeed, the Ukrainian government have, have urged people in the east to evacuate to the west. So the numbers, you know, getting close to 10 million now is going to increase. You I mean, you'll have, you know, up to half of the population of the country living in Poland uh, and uh, other states. And Hungary, of course, is now this dreadful guy. Orban has been this neo-fascist has been re-elected in Hungary. So I don't know what to make of that. That's right. I mean, there will be millions of people fleeing the country. There'll be millions of people fleeing to the west of the country. But I'm, I mean, I, again, I'm, I'm, I, don't, I don't believe you have me on, on your show for my optimism here, but I don't think Putin is done with the west of Ukraine. He is going, just taking part of the east does, is not what he wants to accomplish there. So I would expect more bombing raids and that kind of thing in the western Ukraine. They're not going to be able to get ground troops there, but they can get their air force there, at least for now. Well, but that means this war will go on for months and months. And then if the Ukrainians are eventually worn down uh, through attrition in maybe you know several months' time, then the guerrilla war starts. So there's no end, is there, that, as far as I can see? This very well could go on for a very long time for those reasons. And because of that, as this war goes on, it 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 raises a different set of challenges for the American government, not because of anything, any mistake Biden is necessarily made, but just because that's the nature of a long war, especially in the context of a competitive political system here in the United States, where one of the parties is torn between kind of a traditional uh, anti-Russia position and a leader, de facto leader, who is uh, and largely a client of Vladimir Putin. And again, I'm speaking with Lincoln Mitchell, who's a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Salzman Institute of War and Peace Studies, the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy. He has an article at NBC News, Biden probably didn't expect Putin's invasion of Ukraine to last this long. That's a problem. So let's talk about the domestic situation here with an election coming up in November. And of course, Biden is completely sidetracked by this war to that extent. I mean, clearly, Putin wants Trump to come back. He put him, helped put him in there in the first place. So I'm sure he's thinking of what he can do to, to hurt Biden. How long do you think the Republicans are going to stay on board if this thing goes on for a long time and the country of Ukraine is destroyed? My, um, my sense... My sense is that the Republicans will try to have it both ways. So some of them will be saying Biden isn't tough enough. We should be escalating. We should be sending troops into Ukraine. All of those things you can say when you're the party that doesn't have to make decisions, right? So you can talk tough because you don't actually have to take responsibility for those decisions. Biden has an extraordinarily difficult balance to walk because 
this notion of we're not going to escalate gets increasingly difficult as Putin unilaterally keeps escalating. We keep learning more about what he's doing. But but to get to your question, the other side of that is that what the Republicans will do is they won't say, you know, we need to up front, we need to support Putin. But what they will say is they know that the American people as of today, and this is unlikely to change, care a lot more about inflation than they do about the war in Ukraine. In other words, just to just to frame that, it's the Republican position that Americans should care more about high gas prices than crimes against humanity in Ukraine. And what they will do is they will link these things, even though there's nothing really there. And they will say, look, Biden is so busy supporting Ukraine, which he isn't even really doing all that well. This is the Republican line, not my view, that he's neglecting domestic politics. And now you're paying six, seven, whatever it is, dollars for a gallon of gas. And that's Biden's fault. And we need to get us back in there. And of course, if the Republicans win back the House, and don't forget, we don't have a presidential election coming up. It's only Congress. But if they do that, then immediately the Biden administration gets bogged down in whatever fantastical hearings the Republican leadership wants. And you can imagine impeachment hearings. You can imagine endless investigations. You could imagine investigations of the role of the Democrats and what happened on January 6th. You, you can, as wild as you let your imagine go, it's not as demented right. as that of you know Kevin McCarthy sure. and the people around him. Sure, and Trump today is now blaming Nancy Pelosi for the insurrection on January the 6th. Right, and his people, I mean, I've been on TV programs, people have been saying that to me for months now. That's a fantasy that they have. It's Nancy mm-hmm. Pelosi's fault. But I think though the Europeans, uh, particularly the Germans and, and the Poles in particular, I mentioned the, the, the disgusting guy in Hungary who was obviously in Putin's pocket, I think they're going to stick it out. I mean, you mentioned in your article, of course, that summer's coming up. Or they won't need so much gas, but the war could be going on into the next winter. I don't think they're going to crumble. I think they... I mean, this is the irony, Lincoln. Putin is using the threat of nuclear war as a kind of cover. <laughs> That's why Biden can't do much right. more than send arms in because, he's, as he's mentioned many times, I don't want to start World War Three. So the, to and, that and it extent, a, it's been advantageous for Putin. Right, and it is, you know, World War Three is a, potentially a bit of an overstatement, right? I mean, we don't know what will happen, but, but ultimately the question isn't do you want to avoid World War Three, which I suspect we all want to avoid, but are you going to just let the Russian military continue to commit these war crimes in Ukraine to kill thousands and thousands, potentially more civilians? At what point do we say we have to do something? And there will be pressure. But but I don't think I see that pressure coming organically, domestically here in the United States. My concern about Europe, or my, my view on Europe, is that on the one hand, as as the European governments and people learn more about Putin and what he's doing, you know, what's happening in Ukraine today— they will recommit to the sanctions, but over time that gets difficult, particularly as their economies begin to be – because these sanctions, they don't hurt our economies nearly – our American economy nearly as much as they hurt various European economies. We don't have a lot of trade. We're further away, et cetera. But the so same inflation and supply chain issues that are problems here will be potentially bigger problems there, and that will be a counterweight that could push some governments – to not want to stay with the sanctions and holding that together is extremely important for President Biden over the next weeks, months, and potentially longer. So then the key then to get Putin to stop is what happens to his economy, right? I mean, I don't see any other way. He's absolutely determined to crush 
the Ukrainians. And by the way, the propaganda now coming out from Russian state media is, is taking a very dark turn, where initially they said that the government in Kiev were a bunch of Nazis. And now because the Ukrainians are putting up such a fight, the R- Russian propagandists are telling their people that the whole country are Nazis and that they, the whole country has to be purged. So that's the mindset. It's almost genocidal. It's, it's moving in that direction. Again, we don't know what's going to happen, but that, that, that is a, a change here, which is a you can almost see or feel the frustration in the Kremlin that they've had to pivot this way because they're angry at the Ukrainian people for fighting back which is to say they're angry at the Ukrainian people because the propaganda that Putin and, and the Russian government was telling the world and the Russian people leading up to the uh, the war it was just completely wrong. I, I remain concerned that as long as Putin has markets for his goods, particularly the, the fossil fuels and the energy, which are really the engine of the Russian economy, he can stay in this war, and that market is China. And if there's two people that can end this war, one is Vladimir Putin and one is Xi Jinping. And neither of them seem to be uh, in any way. I mean, the Chinese are sitting on the fence and they sort of had a lukewarm response I mean, to the atrocities, although Chinese media basically toe the Russian line that it's all fake news. So I don't think there's much hope there with Xi. That's right. The only hope, again, would be that the Russian economy gets hit so much that's, worse than the European economies. Would that ever get to Putin? I don't know. Well, well you're right in that... Uh, well, I would say this: to describe the Chinese government as sitting on the fence is a charity. is very charitable. I think they've been they've cast their lot with Putin, and for that reason, I agree with you. She is not going to end this war, but the Russian economy is getting. I mean, these sanctions are badly hurting the Russian economy. But to go from there to what I think a lot of folks in Washington want to believe that you know the Russian people will rise up and overthrow uh, Vladimir Putin to me, that's an extraordinary leap. The, the data that I'm seeing, the reports that I'm seeing, are that you know Putin has his base in Russia that's sticking with him. And that base, and stop me if this sounds familiar, skews older, less educated, and lower income. Does that sound familiar? And they in the are- country, And in the country, the Narod. In, and, and, and right, and, and not, not in the big cities. And that's who's supporting him. And as long as he is that support, you know, there's not gonna be some kind of massive street demonstrations that push Putin out. And the economy is bad, but the Chinese can, can, can keep buying uh, their exports, as will other countries. And my fear is that Putin can survive this. And so when you keep the sanctions on for a very long time, immiserating the, the Russian people, but not over, but not stopping the war, there will be pressure on Biden to do something different. And, and I don't know what the plan is for that. Well, Lincoln Mitchell, I thank you for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. It's always a good conversation. And again, I've been speaking with Lincoln Mitchell, who's a professor of political science at Columbia University, where he also serves as an associate scholar in the Salzman Institute of War and Peace Studies. He's the author of numerous books on the former Soviet states, baseball and democracy. And he has an article in NBC News, Biden probably didn't expect Putin's invasion of Ukraine to last this long. That's a problem. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the Biden administration's announcement today that is extending the moratorium on federal student debt, which stands at $1.7 trillion and counting. Then someone says you're in the wrong place, my friend. You'd better leave. And the only sound that's left after the ambulances go is Cinderella sweeping up 
on Desolation Road. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Barmak Nasirian, who's the Vice President for Higher Education Policy at Veterans Education Success, where he develops and executes the organization's higher education policy priorities. He has worked on the last three congressional reauthorizations of the Higher Education Act, including multiple rounds of negotiated rulemaking with the United States Department of Education, and has testified before congressional committees on various higher education topics. Welcome to Background Briefing, Barmak Nasirian. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, President Biden announced today another pause in the student loan payments. This is the seventh extension since the uh, pause took in effect in March of uh, 2020. And there's, uh, the nation has $1.7 trillion of student loan debt outstanding, which continues to grow. So the freeze apparently saves 41 million borrowers about $5 billion a month, uh, according to the Education Department. So how do you see this? Because it doesn't seem to solve the problem. Is it, is it kicking the can down the road? Well, it's very difficult to see it as anything but that. The fundamental problem we have with higher education financing in the U.S. is over-reliance on debt, and that, that amount of borrowing uh, is not, you know, we call them loans, but in reality, any any pragmatic look at the portfolio should indicate that a good chunk of it is not going to be repaid under any circumstance. So that's the challenge that the administration is confronting, the accumulation of 40 years of over-reliance on debt, income stagnation that doesn't keep up with the debt service, and the, and the challenge, the political challenge of what to do with that amount of overhang. So it seems to me like they're, they're sort of delaying the inevitable here. So is it worth going back in history to try and understand how we got into this situation? Because here in California, for example, the University of California uh, back in the 60s and 70s uh, was pretty much free tuition. Something happened in the last few decades to turn education into a, a sort of profit-making venture for lenders. I mean, and it's resulted in this unbelievably cruel and ridiculous situation where generations of young Americans are saddled with debt before they even get a job. And usually it's a lifetime of debt. That's, uh, I think you, you have the story right. If you think back to the post-World War II era until the, the late 70s even, the fact is that most public institutions in this country were borderline free. I mean, the, the, the fees were so nominal that for all intents and uh, purposes, uh, public higher education was uh, tuition free. 
what happened again you know the the road to hell is paved with good intentions i think there what we need to realistically admit that it was free at a time when um, opportunity was not as broadly distributed. It was free at a time when the population, when significant uh, components of our population, minorities, underserved populations, adults, were not really able to participate in higher ed. So it was more affordable to keep it free. But certainly a whole series of other changes began to take place starting in the mid-70s that, that really sort of culminated in the early 80s with a probably unconscious decision to be charitable about it, uh, to shift away from grant funding and subsidizing higher education uh, with public funds in favor of uh, student loans and debt financing. And the theory undergirding that sort of sounded reasonable at the time. The theory was well, you know, these students are investing in their future. They are certainly going to graduate with much higher wages. And we are so sure that these wages will suffice to cover the difference in the added cost that education will prove to be a bargain. This is the best investment they could have made. And, you know, again, like all other um, all other promises taken to their extreme and sort of real, based on very real, very optimistic assumptions. That didn't sound crazy. The problem is, of course, wages did not keep up. Uh, we we have a wage stagnation problem in this country still after four decades, and more importantly, costs escalated. And that was a function of a whole series of decisions, most notably disinvestment by states. Uh, shifting costs to students, and the result of all that is, as you pointed out, the, the 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 enormous sums of money outstanding in the form of indebtedness that, in some cases, goes back you know a couple of decades. These are people now in their fifties and sixties still paying back student loans. So, given that students are, we have become centers of profit as opposed to centers of investment. Is there any way to reverse this trend? Obviously, what President Biden announced today is a temporary measure, and it expires on the 31st of August, which is close to the election. So I find that a little puzzling. Does that mean that Biden is going to make a, a more bold announcement at the end of August? I Candidly, I don't know. Uh, it could go either way. We have been hoping for a bold announcement since the president took office. You know, and and uh, opinions vary. You know, as you are well aware, there is there is a position uh, espoused by the most progressive wings of the Democratic Party that all student debt needs to be forgiven. Uh, there are others who talk about various other amounts, and and uh, you know we can have a healthy debate about that. Um, but even even the most modest form of broad uh, loan forgiveness would have been a fairly consequential act. And we had anticipated that whatever the administration's position, it would be known by now. It is not, I, uh, I assume, for various reasons, political and financial. Uh, and whether they will come to some final resting position on where they stand on student loans by the end of this freeze... Uh, only time can tell. The timing is not auspicious, certainly. You know, a couple months before midterm election is not the time to, to be making that kind of a decision, perhaps. But that's their call, not, not mine. 
Right. You're going to have a hard time getting the students, 41 million borrowers, uh, to vote for the Democrats if they don't uh, extend it or do some form of loan forgiveness. And again, I'm speaking with Barmak Nasirian, who is a Vice President for Higher Education Policy at Veterans Education Success, where he develops and executes the organization's higher education policy priorities. He has worked on the last three congressional reauthorizations of the Higher Education Act, including multiple rounds of negotiated rulemaking with the Department of Education, and he has testified before congressional committees on various higher education topics. So you mentioned some of the progressives are calling for loan forgiveness. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren, there have been lobbying Biden to use his executive authority to cancel $50,000 in student debt per borrower. Biden, in his uh, election campaign, he campaigned on forgiving up to 10000 in debt per borrower. So even if you took the higher number, 50000 what would that do? How many people would that rescue from being indentured? Um, I don't know the precise number. It'll be in the millions. Um, and the the point that I think people need to um, candidly confront here is that loan forgiveness is a retroactive choice. You're attempting to right what you did wrong up until now. Now, in whatever amount you, you happen to pick, uh, the question uh, should immediately arise, well, what do we do if we have a debt bubble, bubble accumulated over time that, that has reached a point of criticality where we need to write off a significant chunk of it? How do we prevent the bubble from uh, being uh, recreated uh, probably on a shorter timeline now as borrowing levels are going up. And that's, I think, one of the reasons for hesitation when it comes to debt forgiveness. It's one thing to say I can, with in one fell swoop, deal with the sins of the past, but you have to have a parallel policy almost immediately ready to go as to what you're going to do prospectively to prevent this same accumulation. And you know, part of the problem here is that the entire policy focus for decades now has focused on the means as opposed to the ends. You know, sort of like our health insurance debate, instead of focusing on making healthcare available, we focused on making health insurance available. So instead of focusing on making college affordable, we have focused on financing college and on making loans affordable. And I think the the real turnaround will come when policymakers basically come up with solutions as to what to do about the cost of college to, to working people. So what is this proposal called Fresh Start, where a lot of the borrowers who have yes. defaulted or are yes. delinquent on their loans will get a fresh start on their payments yes. once yes. collection resumes. What, yes. what does that amount to? Well, again, first of all, I want to acknowledge that the administration is attempting to do the right thing here. You know, it's the old saying that you can't get blood from a turnip. People who are in default, I, I sort of broadly describe defaulting on student loans as having only one of three possible causes. Either you're, you have the money and you're unwilling to pay, 
or you, you just don't have the money and can't make payment, or sometime in the middle there is errors and inadvertence and poor servicing, avoidable technical reasons why somebody might have gone into default. The fact is that given the harshness of the federal collections process when somebody goes into default, people need to realize it is it is uh, beyond doubt the most collectible kind of debt you can owe, more than taxes even. They will garnish your wages, you, you, you lose uh, licensure in some states for certain professions. There is, there is fairly harsh consequences associated with default. So, so the fact is people who are in default are not there voluntarily, they're there because of circumstances and the administration is attempting to remedy their, their punitive charges, the additional punitive charges and punitive collections tactics that are deployed against defaulters. So that's a good thing. But once again, you know, it's hard looking at the population in question and see it as uh, as a real permanent solution. And the reason is because, you know, somebody went into default because they don't have the money putting them back in good standing will certainly be helpful in maybe mitigating some of the costs, but odds are fairly high that they still don't have the money to repay and they may still face structural debt-to-income disparities that will make it very difficult for them to make payment. So you mentioned earlier, uh, Barmak, that the Congress and the government should come up with better ways to finance higher education. One of the things that the Congress has come up with is the most predatory and disgusting exploitation of young kids, often the minority kids, aspiring to join the middle class and veterans uh, as well, young veterans. And this, I'm referring to the for-profit college industry that's rife with fraud. And that's about up to $40 billion a year of taxpayer money that literally is ripped off by these these bad actors that just hold up a shingle, call itself some you know fancy name, and then inflict a lifetime of debt on these kids and give them an absolutely worthless diploma. How much of the of the debt burden, the one point seven trillion, is caused by these shady operations, which the Congress not only have they allowed, but many former congressmen are defending it. They belong to the lobbying group that keeps this racket going. Many current sitting congressmen are defending it too, I'm sorry to say. Uh, you are certainly correct that we we face a fairly multifaceted uh, challenge here with uh, student loans. A very uh, significant uh, component of the problem can, in fact, as you point out, be traced back to bad actors, to entities that essentially trade on the rhetoric of equal opportunity and mo- and economic mobility, but are but but that have essentially adopted consumer fraud as a business model. And you know, consumer fraud is really m- much more compelling in this arena than it would be with sell- selling people physical objects because physical objects can be inspected, right? I mean, somebody sells you a a, a shoddy quality TV, you can turn it on and examine the picture and figure out that you get ripped off. With education, they make all kinds of representations about future outcomes. And frankly, by the time the victim figures out they've been ripped off, you know, 
the fraudsters are on their yachts enjoying the good life. So that is on the Department of Education and and even in a more compelling way on Congress for having uh, created a, a completely um, imaginary gatekeeping system that looks tough, talks tough, and does very little when it comes to protecting students. And you are absolutely right, particularly about communities of color, underserved populations, veterans who get disproportionately enrolled in these institutions, and we ought to do better. So that's a big chunk of the problem. But I want to be candid here and tell you that in addition to outright fraud, which is what you uh, opened the, this question with, we also have increasingly the problem of um, of people getting in programs that may not be fraudulent, but that are basically overpriced in in relation to their uh, earning potential. Now, this isn't to say people shouldn't major in philosophy like I did or go study Byzantine history. They should. But 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 that shouldn't should be uh, financed with fellowships, with grants, with institutional funds. Uh, in whatever quantity we can afford, it shouldn't be financed. Those kinds of activities being financed with debt that that there is an expectation of repayment for, that's a big chunk of the problem as well. Increasingly, I, I have to tell you, increasingly, 20 years ago, if you spoke with me with the same question, I would have said, yeah, absolutely. The problem is concentrated in the for-profit sector. It, the for-profit sector continues to be uh, replete with horrible examples of bad actors, but I have to tell you, all these master's programs, online master pro master's programs that are cash cows for otherwise legitimate institutions, give me pause as well. I don't know that they're necessarily worth what students are borrowing to 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 enroll in them. Right, but I think it's obvious that if if the government had invested the thirty to forty billion dollars in community colleges, uh, we'd be so much better off. And the president's wife uh, is a big advocate for community colleges, but I don't see anything really happening there to transfer these wasted funds that go to fraudsters and invest in community colleges. You know, not every well, kid it, not every kid is destined for an Ivy League education. I absolutely agree with you. Community colleges, public four-year institutions, are important linchpins in economic mobility in access. Because they're proximate to, to people, people can access them and, and all of the good things that go along with it. But I would also point out, you have a problem when the good actors are expected to lose money on every enrollment and the bad actors can actually make money on every enrollment. The consequence of that dynamic, because you realize educating somebody at a community college, whatever the tuition payments are, that's actually below what the college is spending on educating them. That's why it's a good choice, right? You're being subsidized by somebody. Uh, well, you know, it shouldn't surprise anybody that the people who lose money on every enrollment don't have the resources to take out ads, to lobby Congress the way the folks who are minting, you know, pretty good coin on the other side can do. And that's part of the dynamics of the system kind of tail spinning out of control. Well, uh, thank you for joining us uh, here today, Mamak Nasirian, and I'll touch base with you again. Uh, I would love that. Particularly in August. <laughs> <When> <laughs> well, I think, I think we have something to look forward to either way. Okay. 
Thank you so much. And again, I've been Thank speaking you. with Barmak Nasirian, who's the Vice President for Higher Education Policy at Veterans Education Success, where he develops and executes the organization's higher education policy priorities. He has worked on the last three congressional reauthorizations of the Higher Education Act, including multiple rounds of negotiated rulemaking with the United States Department of Education, and has testified before congressional committees on various higher education topics. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the punitive new abortion ban in Oklahoma, which is being overrun by medical refugees from Texas seeking abortions. And the likelihood that in June, Roe v. Wade will be overturned or neutered by our reactionary Supreme Court. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Carol Sanger, a professor of law at Columbia Law School, where she teaches courses on reproductive rights, family law, the legal profession, and law and gender. And her latest book is About Abortion, Terminating Pregnancy in the 21st Century. Welcome to Background Briefing, Carol Sanger. Thank you very much. So the Oklahoma legislature just passed a new bill that anyone who performs an abortion could face up to 10 years in prison and up to $100,000 in fines. The bill seems to have caught everybody by surprise. What is the motive behind the passage of this bill? Uh, Of course, it passed by some extraordinary margin, 70 votes to 14. Right, right. Well, the, mo- the, the reason it came as a surprise, I think, to take that first, is because the court is ve- the Supreme Court is very likely to overrule Roe in three months, so either in late May or early June. So nobody thought you had to. Well, it, it wasn't thought it necessary to actually ban abortion um, because it was going to happen in a legal manner anyway, uh, rather rather quickly. So what states have been doing is sort of tantalizing themselves by coming as close to banning it as they can with the sort of um, Texas kind of uh, legislation uh, saying that anyone in the country can sue someone who performs an abortion after six weeks and a variety of other really um, crazy uh, forms of restriction on abortion. But apparently Oklahoma couldn't wait. And so when you ask what's the motivation, so they, they just banned it outright. And I was looking back that a couple of weeks ago, they were proposing legislation in Oklahoma that would ban it at 30 days. So 30 days is even better than six weeks by those standards. Uh, but they But in the interim, they decided to just go ahead and ban it. And um, not and banning it is making it is is unconstitutional because we still have Roe. It is still the law of the land. Um, but what I think it does is it has a very practical effect um, that abortion providers are much less likely to they they don't want to flagrantly um, violate the law. 
And so what what it will probably do if the if the clinics clo- close uh, is keep women from Oklahoma, but serious number of women from Texas from coming into Oklahoma while waiting for the Dobbs case to be decided in the summertime. Uh, so it it has a practical effect of which has been part of all these legislative efforts of making abortion harder, if not impossible to get uh, in a very practical way. And the other thing is, is it, it shows we're as tough as it comes. We, we, we people here in Oklahoma um, ban it outright and we're proud of it. Like we we we're taking no prisoners. We're, we're going to show the court how serious we are about this, and it's certainly beneficial with that vote that you gave. Uh, I think it was like seventy six to fourteen or something like that. Um, to, to to for anyone who's up for re-election, which a number of people will be in November, to show that they put their money where their mouth is, even before they had to. So I think it's kind of partly symbolic and partly quite intending to make um, life much harder for pregnant women who would prefer to terminate their pregnancy. Well, as you mentioned, there are refugees coming in from, medical refugees coming in from Texas, at least half. Yes, yes. And uh, there's a clinic that operates in, in Oklahoma City, Trust Women, and right. they have seen a 2,500% increase in patients. So <laughs> yeah. mostly c- coming from out of state, meaning Texas. Yes, yes. Well, a few years ago, we had a Texas case where uh, it was re- put requirements on, um, it was in 2000, called Whole Women's Health, which was a, a uh, and the state of Texas had then put uh, requirements on abortion providers that they had to have admitting privileges in in hospitals within 30 miles which which is very difficult to do for a number of reasons um and what the court found uh, that that a lot of research had gone into it after it was decided at the trial level that the few clinics that were remaining were the words were filled to capacity uh, so that women could not get the individualized care that um, we expect doctors to deliver to patients. So sort of by doing this, they, the, the anti-abortion people produce the very effects they accuse pro-choice people of, which is abortion mills, running people through, not enough care. Um, but they actually force it by the closure of clinics which is one of the great objects of all their legislation. Close the clinics, squeeze the providers, um, increase the fees, you know, things that would be, um, that would make um, abortion harder to provide and harder to get both. And again, I'm sorry. uh, Go ahead. Yeah, no, please. No, you're about to say something. Go ahead. Well, I was, I was just thinking how, how preposterous it all has it is it's it's coming to quite a head and i was um writing something today and i said the reproductive scene in america is becoming a laugh riot and do you know that phrase laff riot yeah 
Mm-hmm. That it's a laugh riot because it's laughable the kinds of legislation that is being um, being uh, enacted. And I saw that in Oklahoma, they didn't even have a floor uh, debate. I mean, they just voted, so nobody was even going to argue its side, which shows either the antis just figured there's no point. We've made our point already, and the pro-choice people just knew they would get slammed. All 14 of them. Um, and I, I feel it's taking on like riotous, riotous qualities as one zanier piece of law comes out of, you know, the next state to, to take, take up the, the, um, the banner of anti-abortion. And the funny thing is, this is all right before it's probably going to go their way. I mean, there's some chance that they won't, the Supreme Court won't overrule, um, grow entirely and leave some small period of time in which abortion would be legal, something like six weeks or ridiculously 30 days. Um, And in that sense, they won't have overruled Roe because it will still be legal, you know, for some, for some, for some small period of time, which is practically worthless to a newly pregnant uh, uh, person. Um, so, so it, it's, I, I can't explain. It's like standing on the, on the wayside and watching a race go by and, and the, the, the racers are just acting more and crazier and crazier. Um, so I don't know. I was reading a, an article, uh, something by the, the representative from the Susan B. Anthony list, which is the, um, a conservative women's group that opposes this legal abortion. And the woman said, I, I just saw this. It is the epitome. What's happening now with um, anti-abortion protests it is the epitome of the American spirit trying to get around a settled, uh, un, unsettled law. And I thought, wow, now being against abortion is a sign of, you know, nationalism. It's, it's the American thing to do, but the the joke is sort of that the law is not unsettled. The law is very settled. Roe is very clear what it permits and doesn't permit. And so, you can, if you're against abortion, you can sort of frame it any way you want as, as you know, real good American protest. And again, I'm speaking with Carol Sanger, who's a professor of law at Columbia Law School, where she teaches courses on reproductive rights, family law, the legal profession, and law and gender. And her latest book is about abortion, terminating pregnancy in the 21st century. So the the decision by the Supreme Court is expected in June. So you're suggesting, Carol, that it may not be a complete ban. I mean, this seems to be pretty much accepted that it's going to happen, either banned outright or, or heavily restricted. So, yes. Well, the heavily restricted would leave abortion, uh, would leave Roe v. Wade in existence. So we had Roe v. Wade in 1973. Then in 1992, we had this case called uh, Casey versus Planned Parenthood. And Casey, everyone thought, was going to overturn Roe. But it didn't, and the court insisted in its opinion that it was abiding, it was holding Roe's essence. It was not overturning Roe. But when you really looked at Casey, 
it took away a lot of the rights that existed under Roe. But it didn't take away basic prime primary legality. You still women still women or their doctors still couldn't be arrested. And so that's what they considered upholding the essence of Roe. And it seems to me to uphold the essence by leaving a two-week period where someone can get a legal abortion. I mean, if they're you know lucky enough to have to to, to know they're actually pregnant um, and can find a provider, is uh, is the is the equivalent of banning abortion completely. And it, it gives some on the court some satisfaction to say, well, we we didn't ban it completely. Um, I I guess. I personally don't feel grateful for that. I think that um, probably the best thing is for them to, at this stage, is for them to ban it and and let politics do its work and see if there'll be a reaction to no more abortion in over half the states, because that's what the polls seem to show, that over half the states will go ahead and reinstate whatever criminal laws they have against abortion. And then we'll see, do people feel differently about that now? You know, do women who have been two generations of women have um, matured knowing that if they had an unwanted pregnancy, they could turn to legal abortion, that they had a right under the Constitution to do that? And and maybe, maybe people got lax in thinking that that this was something that just didn't, it wasn't a birthright. It was a, you know, it was a Supreme Court decision. So that's the only thing that would, would reinstate it. Um, and, and that maybe people, maybe women who, or anyone who favors legal abortion for an unwanted pregnancy um, at some, for some period of the pregnancy will become more political and not just, stand by and not have a floor debate uh, when an issue like Oklahoma's is is, um, is put up for a vote. You know, maybe we'll see greater political reaction. Um, some people have called this the, the luxury of legality, that because it was legal, nobody thought it could be taken away. But we're actually there now. Well, it's been such a zealous battle on the part of the anti-abortion people. It's not entirely surprising. But there does seem to be a workaround here. In the last few minutes, let's talk about Mm. the the drug Mifrostone. Mm -hmm. This is a medication abortion pill. In July of 2020, the U.S. Food and Drug Administration announced that anyone seeking a medication abortion uh, up to 10 weeks into pregnancy, because of COVID, uh, they no longer have to pick it up in person or to take it in right. the presence of a doctor. That's right. So what's happening with that drug? Because if it, if it was widely yeah. available and, you know, at CVS and at Walgreens, which I believe is starting to happen now, or at least they've certified, yeah. isn't that going to make a difference? Because one of the things I find so frustrating about the anti-abortion people is a lot of them are also against contraception. And if you yeah. have, don't have contraception, then you make abortions likely. <laughs> so if you don't like abortions, yeah, you then do. you should be in favor of contraception. 
Yeah. Well, see, this takes us right down to the nub because you have to ask, what is this opposition to abortion about? A lot of people would argue, um, including those who oppose abortion, that it's about a kind of promiscuity of, of women and girls and that actually the problem here is non-procreative sex rather than just accidental pregnancy. So, so that there are a number of people who think as soon as abortion goes down, um, uh, contraception can step right up and put its head on the chopping block. And certainly, constitutionally, that is a plausible outcome because the, the law in Roe came directly from a Supreme Court case on contraceptive called Griswold versus Connecticut. Uh, Connecticut had said married people couldn't buy or use um, um, contraception. And the court said, no, 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 that is a violation of the right to privacy that goes against the, the sanctity of marriage. But if Roe goes down, Roe quotes extensively from Griswold, um, it, it's very possible they might rewind the whole privacy line of cases. And so there's concern about um, contraception. There's also concern about same-sex uh, marriage equality. You know, that also came from privacy. And will that is that part of a, a longer strategy to get rid of intimate behavior that some of the population opposes? But just to go back to your pill question, yeah, states are now beginning to draft legislation saying that in their state you can't receive um, um, the, the abortion pill in, in the mail. Right now you can because states haven't really quite gotten onto it. But it would be, it's a very interesting technological victory for uh, a, a social problem that what's going to save everyone is that you can now do this private. You can have a private abortion. Sometimes it's called self-management. Um, and, and, and it works very well and it's very, very safe and it's less expensive. So it has you know, quite a few bene benefits um, to going into, for having to go to a clinic. It's, uh, so, so yes, there is a, there is another chapter to be written, but we don't have any law on the pill. Although if abortion is illegal, that I think would include any, um, any manner of, of producing an abortion, like giving someone pills. But it's pretty. It would be pretty hard to prosecute. You'd have to know that they were getting pills. Um, I was just looking at an ad from the UK where if you call the, like the Planned Parenthood of, of England, um, they send you your pills in a uh, unmarked package, you know, just brown paper, with very clear instructions on how to how to use them, and so it, it it's not it's certainly not impossible. Right now, pharmacies from abroad are beginning to advertise um, need, you know, looking for an abortion pill, call this number and we will have it either sent to um, a pharmacy in Canada or Mexico, or if your state permits, you know, it doesn't have any ban on it, which, which 
no one does now, uh, we can send it right to your home. So that would be quite interesting. I mean, it would be a real benefit as shown by the fact that 50% of um, American women use it already when they, when they are aborting. Well, Carol, saying I thank you for joining mm-hmm. us here today and giving us an update on this thing, and uh, we'll hold our breath sure. until June, okay? Yes, well, thank you. It was nice talking with you. And again, I've been speaking with Carol Sanger, who's a professor of law at Columbia Law School, where she teaches courses on reproductive rights, family law, the legal profession, and law and gender. And her latest book is About Abortion, Terminating Pregnancy in the 21st Century. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.